It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter, at PlayLikeAJet1. And I'm joined by a very special guest for the roundtable. If you're a big Jets fan, and if you're listening to this podcast, I think there's a pretty good chance that you are, you will recognize his voice because he hosts the pre- and post-game on SNY for Jets coverage alongside Ray Lucas and the one and only Bart Scott. Of course, I'm talking about SNY anchor Jonas Schwartz. Jonas, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I've been looking forward to having you on for a while because I want to ask you before we get into anything else, do you or do you not have a huge bottle of extra strength Excedrin underneath your desk for when Ray and Bart (laughs) go off on tangents after Jets games? I'll tell you what I don't have is uh, is anything that needs to wake me up. I don't have energy drinks. (laughs) I got all the energy coming from those two guys, and I've gotten used to the volume, so... I don't need the Advil or anything like that. Um, those guys are funny. Anytime I do any other role uh, on, on SMY, people ask me, what's the difference between that and Jets? And I say, Jets, I always wonder if we're all going to have our careers at the end of the postgame show after what those two guys are going to say about <laughs> what they just saw. Um, those guys are the best. And you know what? We're passionate about it, and they bring the volume. And, you know, me as having more of the background as a guy who grew up watching the Jets as opposed to playing for them, Sometimes they, they, they try to quiet me down and calm me down, especially while we're watching the game. Um, but those guys are a blast to work with, and it's a dream come true for me to do it with them. Yeah, I would imagine that it's got to be awesome as a lifelong Jet fan to be able to be a part of that coverage, even though it's been some rough sledding for the Jets over the last decade or so. This past year, they were 7-9. and nine. They were right around where everybody thought they would be at the beginning of the season, although they didn't think that they would get there in that particular way. What were your overall yeah. thoughts on the Jets' first season under the coaching of Adam Gase? Well, you know, it's just like you say, and even as you say 7-9, and nine, it, it, in some ways it didn't feel like 7-9 and nine because of how the season went and how really a lot of the hope of the season was taken away early on with Darnold and the mono and just where this team was. Now, all that being said, listen, I think Adam Gase had some missteps. I think Adam Gase also did some very good things. Um, to bring any team back from where they were with that start to 79 says something. And I watched several years under other coaches, Todd Bowles notably, where this team just did nothing in December. So I was pleased to see that there was still a fight in this team. I think Gase deserves credit for that. I also don't mind, you know, this whole theory of how much do players like Adam Gase. I think, and I know enough of them like him, and I also know it's not such a bad thing for him to be a little tough on players. And send some messages to players. I know the Quincy Nuno story where Quincy did not like, and I, and I know Quincy a little bit. He's as nice a guy and as smart a guy as you run into. But he didn't like how, you know, he was uh, sort of showing up, if you will, for not being there for his treatment. 
you know what? They're paying you to be there for the treatment. And I don't mind Adam Gase putting his name on a, uh, on a, on a blackboard or, a, or, or on the video screens around there saying that he got fired. I don't mind that at all. They're paying you a lot of money. You should do those things correctly. And I think Gase holding a harder line on the players in that fashion as opposed to, say, Todd Bowles is one of the reasons why they were able to come back as the year went on. And, of course, also Greg Williams' great job as a defensive coordinator through tons of injuries also played a role in that. But, you know, the combination of both, I think there are things to be positive about going into the upcoming season. Were you concerned at all, though, about stunts like what happened with Quincy Inouye? I know you're saying that it's good to be tough on players, and I agree to an extent. But when you're alienating sure. players to the point where they're coming out publicly and talking out against you, especially a guy like Quincy Nunwa, who never does anything like that, and then Kelvin Beecham with tweets in the offseason, and you could go through a couple of other examples of players who spoke out publicly, does that concern you at all from a managerial perspective? I think there's a fine line to walk and you're threading the needle. And I hear what you're saying in that if you, it's very easy to go overboard and lose a team. Um, and obviously there are some history with Gase doing that with the Dolphins, although there are other players who will defend him. Um, and the question we will find out, and this year will tell the story, is how many lessons did Adam Gase not only learn from his time in Miami, but also his time at the Jets last year. I, I you know, I understand. The I, one I, I don't get it with team, it's funny. I, I, when I talked to Bart Scott about the Quincy and Unmoy, you know, because I wanted to get the player's perspective, Bart's exact take was, hey, get up and go get your treatment. Get your treatment. They're paying you to get your treatment. You have no right to gripe. Um, and, again, I know Quincy a little bit, and, and, and I was surprised by it because he's a nice, hardworking, smart man. But I think he just caught got caught up in that moment, and, and I, I don't think he handled it the right way. Um, now, the Le'Veon Bell sniping to me, that I don't understand. To me, I would play nice with Le'Veon Bell, mm-hmm. who I think did not have a fair shot uh, last year with the offensive line. And I think to wherever that leak came from, uh, you know, to, to Rich Samini about him not having that explosiveness, I mean, I, I just don't see where that sort of thing is productive. And I'm not saying that was Adam Gase. I don't know where that came from. But those sorts of things, and, and the Jets just spent a couple of days to combine cleaning that up, I think those are unnecessary. But sometimes, it's listen, if you don't hold people accountable, they will walk over you. We saw that with Todd Bowles. Look at look at Muhammad Wilkerson's existence throughout that. I mean, Muhammad Wilkerson got – and part of it wasn't Bowles' fault because they gave uh, Wilkerson the big money extension, and there was ample evidence apparently from people in the building who will tell you before that, you know, that there was enough evidence to tell you that once he got the money, it was going to be a disaster. Um but, but Bowles certainly played a role in it, too. And so I like that Gase tried to hold people accountable. But to your point, he's got to watch it. You go too far, you lose a team. What about offensively? He was sold as a guy that was going to come in here and make the Jets' offense really sing, especially Sam Darnold. And I know that there were injuries and that Luke Falk played a couple of games and the offensive line wasn't great. No question, he was hamstrung a little bit. But the fact that the team was in the bottom five in pretty much all offensive statistical categories, even if you take Luke Falk out of the equation, can't be something that you're not concerned about, right? I think the fairest criticism you could give of Adam Gase off of year one was he was very slow to make some adjustments mm-hmm. um, when it came to his, his his offensive game plan and scheming. And if you look back at that Cleveland Browns game where Beecham is just getting torched, getting torched 
uh, you know, left tackle. And Gase would not give him any help uh, offensively, did not give a running back to chip or put a tight end over on his side. Those are the things, and I thought Gase got better as it, better at it as the year went on, but I thought he was slow adjusting and moving away from his system or, or tweaking his system so that it fit the skills and talents of the players that he had. I think that's a very fair criticism of him, especially considering, I mean, look, he, Todd Bowles, He's never going to be confused as an offensive genius, and certainly not, you know, John Morton and all, you know, all the the connery of a uh, of offensive coordinators that were under Todd Bowles. You could make a case they got more out of Sam Darnold than Adam Gase did in year one. Now, how much of that was the motto? How much of that is a new system? The bottom line is we don't know, and I think you saw Darnold start to play faster as the year went on. Um, We'll find out this year. This year's going to tell a lot about, you know, all these things that you're asking about. This year will tell the tale. Does mm-hmm. Gase learn from his mistakes? Does Darnold, you know, step it up? If Gase makes quicker adjustments, I think there's an offensive mind there that certainly can do a very, very good job. But the coach, the mistake that we see coaches make time and time again is believing too much in the system as opposed to finding a way to mold that system to their players. It's an open question. He needs to adjust quicker. Let's talk about Darnold since you brought him up. Where are you at on him? I know that a lot of people believe that he didn't quite make the leap that we were expecting, and I would fall into that camp. I think he improved, but I don't think he made that jump that we were hoping for in year number two. What do you think of his sophomore season? What do you think he needs to do to actually make that jump in year number three? It's a good good question, Um, and I think the first thing he needs to do is he, first of all, he needs an offensive line mm-hmm. um, and, and one that's competent. And because, as we all know, watched those games last year, for long stretches of the season, the offensive line was not a competent NFL offensive line. And, uh, you know, once Beecham came back and Harris had played center, things sort of at least settled into a level of competency to give him a chance. Um, that The mono made things very difficult on him. I thought he developed some habits that we didn't love to see. Uh, you know, first coming back from the model and then having to run for his life uh, with that line. And, and I think there were some bad habits. Um, but I will tell you this. I think some of what he fell into was trying to make up for a lack of talent around him and not having the supporting cast that he could have. I still am a big Sam Darnold believer. Now, off of last year, there's a question whether he'll get there. I would have said to you off of year one, there was no question. But there's a question. He didn't take the leap forward we all thought he would. Um, but, I, I, you know, every time he would make mistakes, I would look over at Ray Lucas and go, does that worry? And he'd go, no, he's forcing it too much. He doesn't have any help. And Ray is not, as you know, is not shy about criticizing people. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, every time, or I'd say to Bart, this worry that over the long term, and Bart would go, no, no, he, he's just trying to do too much. He's just trying to do too much. So I, I think that played a role in it towards the end of the year. Um, I think once he locked down and they cut down the turnovers, that was obviously big for him. The one thing, you and this sort of comes back to your question about Gase that I did not understand offensively, is why his legs are not utilized more. Sam Darnold is such an effective quarterback rolling out, and it took three quarters of the year to see it at all. And even then, I'm not sure we saw it enough. So I, I think they're still learning each other, and for Darnold to take the next step, Going to take some help from Gase. Going to take a lot of help from Joe Douglas, who has got to beef up that offensive line for him. He knows it, and uh, and, and I think then Darnold will get where he where he he should be. 
it seemed like Darnold's highs were really high and his lows were really low. And then right in the middle were some of the other games. But overall, he's sort of just below average. Would you say that that's more or less an accurate assessment at this time? I would put him just above average. Um, you know, I, I, I again, and I don't think we should have been surprised at how it went in the sense of when you saw that offensive line around him, basically what happened to Sam Darnold was he was like the Sam Darnold at USC. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his junior year, where he had an offensive line, he was great. In his senior year, where he didn't, turnovers came. And I think we saw the exact same pattern replicate itself in his first two years with the Jets. Um, I still think there's an innate ability to make things happen and be a special quarterback. Did we see it accelerate as much as we wanted to? No, we, we didn't. I, I wouldn't call him below average, though. I, I would still say, I mean, even last year, I, he was better than Mark Sanchez for the you know for most outside of the playoffs. That is for mo- a lot of Sanchez's careers. I mean, he you know, so I, I wouldn't put him below average at this point. As far as what they need to do to help him, you mentioned the offensive line a bunch of times, and I think there's no question that's got to be the top priority. Do you think that getting Sam Darnold a wall around him to protect him takes precedent over getting him more talented playmakers? And we're going to get to Robbie Anderson a little bit later, and we know that there's a ton of receivers in this upcoming draft and even some in free agency, but do you think that that's got to be above all else what Joe Douglas has to focus on this offseason no matter what, the offensive line? Yes. Absolutely. Without that, without really improving that offensive line, doesn't matter who your weapons are, you'll never be able to get the ball to them. And I think, you know, and the Robbie Anderson question is a fascinating one as we approach March 18th. Um, but to your point in, in your question, you know, Robbie Anderson's a great deep burner and he improved as a receiver. If you don't have time to throw him the ball, what good is it? And I think there are, well, no one is confusing the Jets' weapons with the Chiefs, certainly. I mean, if Herman comes back and is healthy, if Le'Veon Bell is more in sync, and these are ifs, these are big ifs, but if he's more in sync with the coaching staff, um, you know, I, I mean, you can't count on a new one to come back at this point, but, you know, Crowder affected. There are weapons there. No one's saying they're the best weapons in football. They're not close. But with a good offensive line, I believe Darnold will, you know, turns into a playmaker himself, which makes those other guys better. And I think it will play out, you know, very well that way. Would you, would you like him to have, you know, Julio Jones? Yeah. But, you know, I, 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 you know, I think it's more important to get the line around him before you start getting to, you know, the, the skill position players. I absolutely agree, and I think Joe Douglas clearly believes in that philosophy. He said it when he first got here, you build in the trenches. You build up that offensive line. You build up the defensive line. He's already gotten to build up the defensive line because he already had a strong one when he got here. Now he's got to completely redo the offensive line. Let's talk about the task he has ahead of him. Number one, how confident are you that he's the right guy for this job? And number two, how do you think he should and will approach free agency? You know, I can't tell you I'm confident or I'm not confident because I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hopeful, but I have not, you know, the, the, the way Joe Douglas was brought in here, um, it's very hard to get a read on Joe Douglas yet because he, he was running Mike McCagnon's team last year. Um, and so we haven't gotten any real indication of how he's going to approach things. We're about to find out. And I do think he's going to put a premium on the line. I don't think he's going to be super aggressive in free agency outside of perhaps a targeted strike. I don't even know who that would be, except I would assume 
although the offensive line is obviously, uh, you know, there's plenty of tackles in the draft, uh, he's going to improve that, that, that offensive line for AC. He has to. Um, but, you know, if you look at where he's coming from, he comes from, you know, Ozzie Newsom tree. And Ozzie Newsom never made huge splashes in free agency. And I think, you know, as you look at more and more big splashes in free agency, they rarely pan out as you hope. So I thought the real free agency in football is much better in terms of a finishing move, adding one piece, not building a team. And so I think he's going to rely much more on the draft to do it. And that makes this upcoming draft fascinating, especially with where the Jets are picking. Because I, I don't think he's – I mean, he wants a premium player there. And, you know, everybody talks about those four tackles. You know, 11 might be the edge of where those four get done. So does he really want to trade back or trade out of there? I don't think so. I don't know if he wants to give up extra picks to move up. I think he's hoping the draft board breaks his way and he gets who he wants at 11. I think that combined with what he does in free agency, uh, you know, will give us a real indication of how, how he's going to do this. No question about it. And I want to get back to the draft in a bit. But first, I want to ask you about the internal free agents. We talked about Robbie Anderson. There's obviously Kelvin Beecham. Brian Poole's another one. Jordan Jenkins. Those are the major ones. But there are others. Also, guys that could be released. We know that Tremaine Johnson is headed out the door. But there are others that could go in order to clear up some cap space. So talk to me about what you think Joe Douglas should and will do in terms of the internal free agents and the guys on the roster that he may want to clear out. I think Robbie Anderson can come back if the price tag is not crazy, but I think the price tag will get crazy because someone will see his explosive speed and give him a lot of money. Um, but I think Joe Douglas will stay disciplined and realize that as, uh, as nice of a weapon as Robbie is, you know, he's not, he's not a top five wide receiver in this league. And so why pay him up towards that, that amount of money? Uh, I think Beecham has got to come back because of some versatility. Uh, maybe you can get him to play, Right tackle, I think, you know, listen, the worst that offensive line was, and no one is confusing Kelvin Beecham with Anthony Munoz here, okay? But as bad as that line was all year, it was at its worst. It was, again, not competent when Beecham went down. He is at least a professional offensive tackle. And that is, let's be real on this, this roster as it's currently constituted is not chock full of that. So I think they need to bring him back albeit with an understanding of he might have to shuffle around the line. I think Brian Winters obviously will be a cap casualty uh, as he you know, has had trouble staying healthy and makes a lot of money. They could save a lot of money and get the cap cutting him. Um, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see what they do with the linebackers. I would keep them. I would keep them as they are. I, you know, I, I see this talk about moving on from Williams. I, I wouldn't do it. I want to see, see those linebackers actually play together. And I think, well, everybody's, you know, very impressed that Neville Hewitt played at the level he did uh, last year. I, I think there are more talented linebackers on that roster that I want to see play under Greg Williams. I agree with you completely, Jonas, and it's funny. I've been making that point for a while. I think that Avery Williamson is so much better than a lot of people give him credit for, and I'd love to see him stick around, even if it comes down to restructuring the deal. Maybe he takes a little bit of a shave on his pay, but whatever they have to do to keep him around, I would really like to see that tandem of Avery Williamson and C.J. Mosley healthy and playing together in 2020 because I think they could really do some damage. And I also think that they could help to really unlock Quinn and Williams. I was one of Quinn and Williams' biggest proponents heading into the draft. I still get people coming at me about it, but I'm not backing off of it. I still think that he has the opportunity to become an elite player. Were you disappointed 
in his performance in his rookie season. I felt that a lot of it had to do with what Greg Williams was asking him to do because those two linebackers were out. He was having him stunt and two-gap a lot and clog up holes and take on two and three guys at a time, and he wasn't used as much to attack. I think now if you have those healthy guys and perhaps if Joe Douglas adds in an edge rusher or even two edge rushers via the draft and free agency, that'll help a lot too. But I wasn't as disappointed in his rookie season as a lot of people were. Don't get me wrong, I would have loved to have seen more eye-catching statistics, but I think that he, at 21 years old, had a solid rookie season, and I think he can really break out in year number two. Is that where you're at? I, I agree that he has a solid rookie season. I think there's a lot to build on there, and I think mm-hmm. you bring up a good point about his age because people forget how young he is. I, I can't lie. I mean, I, I'd like to have seen more. I would like to a few more splash plays. Although we saw them, he would flash some real ability there mm-hmm. getting in the backfield, uh, you know, wrecking certain series. Um, I, I think the problem for people who are judging Quentin Williams is Quentin Williams is sort of being judged on two factors, one that is fair and one that is not fair. The first would be where he was taken in the draft and uh, the impact of the guy taken right before him in the draft um, in Bosa. And the second, which is unfair to him, um, the specter of a history of taking defensive linemen who don't pan out, uh, and Leonard Williams specifically where you're waiting and waiting for game-wrecking moments, which when you're taking somebody as high as Quentin Williams was taking, that's what you're expecting. Mm -hmm. You're not expecting solid. You want game-changer. You want your game-wrecker. Now, Leonard Williams was always a step below that, even though he was supposed to be the best player in that draft and taking sixth and everything else. Um, But, you know, I, I think Jet fans have some fatigue to taking interior defensive linemen and not seeing them become impact players. And I think Quinn Williams, unfortunately, and it's not his fault, pays for some of that and other people going at him. In the end, though, I do agree with you. Um, it's hard to get a read on exactly where he's going to be off of last year because of what Greg Williams had to do with that defense and what you know he was being asked to do. The problem is that's all we heard about Leonard Williams. He was doing you know he was doing what he was being asked to do, and that's why he didn't have eye flashing you know eye catching stats. Um, but I, I think it will come this year. I'm hopeful it will come. But I, I won't lie. I wanted to see more and more on a consistent basis. He, should, he needs to fill up a stat sheet on a game-in-game-out basis. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. 
Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. What'd you think of Greg Williams? We just talked about how he used Quinn and Williams, but overall, were you a fan of the job that he did in year number one as defensive coordinator for the Jets? Yeah, how could you not be? It was <laughs> great. He was great. Um, he, the fact that he was able to, you know, when you talk about coaches, um, you know, not sticking to their scheme, not molding players to their scheme, but molding their scheme to players. I mean, Greg Williams put on a clinic with it last year. His secondary decimated Tremaine Johnson giving you very little um the injuries the linebackers I mean all of it for him to have gotten a defense that played like they did and his play calling uh from the defensive side of the ball was fantastic now the people always say about Greg Williams he's always great when he gets to a place how long does it last again Greg Williams is, is a smart man he learned from his past I thought he handled just about everybody very very well on that roster. I like the way he challenged Jamal Adams right off the bat. I love the way he then used Jamal Adams after Jamal had his, you know, trade deadline sort of, uh, you know, uh, histrionics there. Because uh, that's when Jamal Adams became the true impact player that we always thought he could be. When he became not only just a good player in the second, but a, and not just great against, you know, in terms of run support, when he became a blitzer the way he was. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, you know, the feather in the cap of what Greg Williams did last year. Um, and then also getting, I mean, look at all those linebackers he had to play. It was crazy. Think about that. I mean, I've never seen so many line. And listen, I come from a past the Jets where, I mean, I saw guys like Kevin MacArthur play a lot. You know, guys who are certainly not Lawrence Taylor when it comes to the linebacker position. I mean, he had everybody and their uncle play linebacker for him last year. And he had a very nice season, strong, competent defense. That ended up uh, on the field, and it's a, it's totally a credit to Williams. 
Let's circle back to Jamal Adams. It sure sounds like Joe Douglas wants to get a deal done and keep him here for the long term. You would assume that means making him the highest paid safety in the NFL. What do you think? Smart move? Yes. Um, I think Jamal is all about doing things the right way. Yeah, he likes Twitter. Yeah, he likes social media. Yeah, he'll start up every now and then. But every player does. And he is the kind of guy that others in that locker room clearly follow. He's the kind of guy who, um, you know, you want those guys to follow him. He sets the right standard in terms of hard work and holding himself accountable. You know, since he got here from day one, at the end of year one, where he called out certain players for not being tough enough on themselves or playing hard enough, um, you know, that's what you want. And when he had the tip right at the trade deadline, you saw the way that team responded that, you know, in a week, you know, in a week or so, they were dead on the field. He's the guy that, you know, he's the straw that serves the drink that goes back to the old Rick Jackson saying. Um, and, and I think that's exactly what you want to pay. And at some point, you draft the guy. He becomes what you wanted him to be. He's one of the best players in the game. That's the guy you keep. That's not the guy you let go. Let's talk draft now because, as you said, this is going to be a very fascinating and important draft. One thing that a lot of people complained about with Mike McCagnan is that there didn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to his picks. You couldn't really figure out a pattern. There wasn't a quote-unquote Mike McCagnan type of player. It sounds like with Joe Douglas, he really wants, as you said, premium positions filled. Edge rusher, cornerback, tackle, and of course, you know that he's going to go after some wide receivers, but the number one priority is going to be left and right tackle, although I'm sure he'll go for some guards and centers if the opportunity to draft those guys arises. What do you think he's going to do in this draft at number 11? Like you said, he may sit there and chess play it a little bit, see if he needs to jump up a little bit or jump back. What if those four tackles are gone? Do you think he goes wide receiver? Do you think that maybe he would surprise some people and go with an edge rusher? Of course, a lot of people would be upset because they're clamoring for offense right now, but with a deep draft yeah. of wide receivers, he may not be inclined to go wide receiver at number 11. What do you think is going to go on here, not only with the number 11 pick, but just overall draft strategy? Because like I said, Joe Douglas at least seems like a guy that has a pattern and a plan, whereas Mike McCagnin never did. Yeah, you see, now I thought McCagnin's plan and pattern was a very simple one, which was best player available without fail, almost always. Um, you know, did it always work? Certainly didn't. Um, I think Joe Douglas might deviate from that a touch to what he his type his type of player, as you said, um, and you know some of the needs for the team. Now, the roster has enough holes to where he can sit at eleven and take. I mean, look look at the positions: edge rusher, offensive line, all up and down that offensive line, uh, receiver. I mean, you could make a case that cornerbacks in need now. I mean, the last thing I, I feel like the Jets should do at this point is take a cornerback that high in the draft. But my point is that there's so many ways this can break where it would be hard to criticize him because there's so many holes on the team to fill. Um, so I, I don't have a feel yet for how he's going to approach this just because I haven't seen him run a draft himself yet. But I, 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 my guess is I think there's one of two things. He either sees a player that he really likes and targets and will move up a little bit to get him, um, or I think he sits tight at 11 and takes somebody, I think he hopes for one of those tackles to fall. Uh, that's my best guess. Now, will he deviate from that if he sees a pass rusher, which the Jets have, uh, an edge rusher, the Jets have forever. I mean, since John Abraham, as we all know, um, you know, I, I, it's possible. 
But my feel is that knowing who he is, he's going to sit tight and hope to get one of those tackles. I agree, although I do think that if somebody like, say, Jeff Okuda were to drop to number 11 unexpectedly, even though he's a cornerback, like you said, maybe he wouldn't go into this planning to take a cornerback at number 11. But if those four tackles were gone and Okuda's on the board, maybe he decides that he's too good to pass up. And you never know exactly how the board is going to break, so I guess we'll see. But I think we have a general sense of what he wants to do overall, not just at number 11. As far as McCagnan, I'm with you in terms of best player available in the first round. After that is where it started to get murky because it's going to be hard to convince me that he thought our Darius Stewart was the best player available and some of the other guys yeah. that he picked. Ja'Kai Polite. Ja'Kai Polite was a pick that I really liked because I thought one thing McCagney never did enough of was high upside swings. I thought Polite had the talent to be a difference-making player. Now, obviously... Both of us, you more so than I might know some things, but neither one of us would know the kind of stuff that an NFL team would know in terms of character. So we'd heard whispers, but if these teams had more intel as far as what a gigantic character risk he was and that he was going to do the things that he did, then yeah, obviously that's a bad pick. But I would have liked to have seen him try to swing for the fences a little bit more from time to time. It seemed like he tried to play it safe a little bit. But I will say this though, Jonas, I think that the one thing that McCagney failed to do for the most part is hit on anybody past the early rounds. And I mean just useful players. They need useful players in those mid to late rounds. And I think that Joe Douglas is really going to earn his paycheck if he can make that happen. Well, you know, you're right. And the reason why the Jets' depth situation is as perilous as it is is because of that. Mike McCagnan not have being successful drafting rounds two, three, four, five is why the Jets don't have as much depth as, as they really need to have. And I think Joe Douglas is going to build up that depth, and I think that will be something we see in this draft without question. That's what's so fascinating about 11. Is there a receiver there that you would love? Yes, but will there be a receiver in the second round? Such deep draft for receivers, um, you know, that, that he can take that's similar. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to be – I'm really interested to see how he judges the position groups and how he judges the separation between the players that go in each round. And that he – you know, there's a lot of times you see people get second-rounders that outperform first-rounders. I'm always curious to see what the draft board ends up looking like for the Jets in terms of how Joe Douglas utilizes this draft, utilizes where he's picking in this draft, and makes it all come together to give the Jets depth and also, as you mentioned – some high-end talent. No question. It's something that Jets fans have been thirsty for for a long time. The opportunity to get guys in here, not just in the first round that make a difference, has been since the Eric Mangini era where that happened. If you go back and look at the drafts, obviously we know he also was responsible for the biggest bust, not only in Jets history, but one of the biggest busts in NFL history in Vernon Golston. But he drafted a lot of players that made a difference in the mid and late rounds. And so you hope that Joe Douglas is a throwback to that. Jonas Schwartz, the co-host of pregame and postgame live on SNY for all Jets coverage and, of course, an anchor year-round for SNY. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back soon. For those that are not following what you're doing now that it's Jets offseason, what do you got going on at SNY? Uh, I do uh, Geico Sports Night. Uh, you know, Eamon McEnany and I, although I also people with uh, Chris Williamson and some of the other uh, anchors there occasionally as well. Um, so I'm on at 11 o'clock, uh, just sort of wrapping up your day in all things New York sports. 
And, uh, you know, I will, and I'll also pop on some of the early shows with a little baseball night in New York every now and then. Um, so, you know, just enjoying it all and taking everything New York sports has to offer, which means a lot of Knicks losing. And, uh, at least the Rangers are decent now and getting ready for March Madness. That's about it. We got to get more off season coverage on SNY of the Jets, though, right? Well, we got to, I'm glad you said that actually, because I'd be remiss. We will have a free agency show coming up, uh, the, the Sunday after. Uh, free agency kicks off, and then obviously our draft coverage will be big and extensive uh, as we get into you know, late April. So Bart and Ray will be around for all of that, um, and so we're, you know we're excited to see how that comes together. And, and Janae Coakley right now is out at the combine, so you know it's one of those things where our coverage continues to you know continues all year long, and we love it. We love every second of it. Beautiful. Really looking forward to watching those specials. I watch all the coverage on SNY, and you should too. You should also be following Jonas on Twitter and watching him every night on Geico Sports Night at 11 o'clock on SNY. So go ahead and do that. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.